Today, computers are still fairly stupid, but you know, in just a few years, they're, they're going to be able to do things that requires real cognitive ability. And imagine how our, how our kids are going to grow up in a world that will be so far into using machines and algorithms for every single task that in the end they have to think about what are they going to be doing. But now we can be, in theory, anything, and the question really is, what do we want to be? What does it define to be human? So who is in mission control in this digital era? Is it giant tech pulling the strings, creating future generations of dehumanized individuals? How do we hold on to our humanity in this age of rapid technological change? I'm Sarah Krogh here at UNICEF's Office of Research in Ocenti in Florence. And in this podcast, Future of Childhood, I'm joining with some of the world's leading minds to explore the future of children's rights over the next 30 years and beyond, from paediatrics to politics, from digital rights to development, from neuroscience to a new renaissance. With me is one such leading mind, renowned futurist and humanist, Gert Lernhardt. Gert, thank you for joining us. Thank you, hello. You have said that in the next 20 years, we are going to see more change than in the previous 300, with technology redefining the very essence of what it means to be human. And of course, we are speaking to you here from the home of humanism, Renaissance Florence. So what do you mean exactly by that? And what do you see as the biggest challenges to childhood and, and indeed those children not yet born? Yes, I mean, if you're looking at the, uh, at the last 20 years of technological development, we still have many things that didn't really work. But now we're going into a future where what used to be science fiction is essentially science fact. So you can speak to computers, you have computers that can allegedly think, you know, thinking machines, you have language translation, you have self-driving cars. So many of the restrictions that we had in the past are kind of falling away. And in 10 years, you can estimate that a computer has pretty much unlimited processing power. So we're looking at things like genetic engineering of humans, which is completely different than anything we've ever done in technology. So technology is now changing us rather than changing our environment. It actually changes us, you know, our brain, our thinking, our culture, for example, social media, right? Uh, and, it, and it's actually going inside of us now, in our bloodstreams, nanobots, and all of these things. That's the next 20 years. So those changes are much more material than anything we've had before because they're changing who we are defined as, you know, as, as a human. And if you're looking at children, it's quite clear that first, the way that we're going to educate our kids has to dramatically change because in this world, working and knowing things takes on an entirely different meaning. For example, uh, computers will have more or less infinite knowledge. So in 10 years or even before that, you can sit down and speak to the computer and get an instant talk on an important topic or a problem-solving approach. All of those things are kind of here, but they're, they're getting to be exponentially faster. So for our kids, it means new skills, a new focus on humanity, uh, also a lot of confusion, because you know, you're gonna have relationships with machines, like we do today with a mobile phone. Uh, imagine what that means for a kid to differentiate between a simulation, you know, technology and reality. So that's, that's a huge challenge. Absolutely, and a lot of confusion. Uh, you speak about thinking machines. We, of course, are now in the field of 
looking at brain chips and there's often a bit of blurring and confusion between augmented and artificial intelligence. Uh, so what specific kinds of technology or augmented reality are likely to have the most impact, do you think, on, on children's lives going forward? There's about what I call the game changes. You know, there's nine game changes that are impacting us today. And of course, our kids, for example, uh, the concept that a computer can learn from data so that you don't have to program the computer, what's called deep learning, right? Uh, so the computer can actually look at facts and sort of derive an action from it without being programmed. Uh, that is called, currently called artificial intelligence. And really what it is, it's a, sort of an intelligent assistant, right? So the computer can do what a human used to do as long as it doesn't require any human judgment or feelings or real understanding, just kind of facts and logic. And just this part alone ha will have huge impact on how our kids are going to experience the future. Because today, computers are still fairly stupid. I mean, they are getting better, but... You know, in just a few years, they're, they're going to be able to do things that requires real cognitive ability, like planning, mapping, analytics, uh, fact-checking, accounting, invoicing, you know, all of those things that are sort of routines, you know, machines will learn. And imagine how our, how our kids are going to grow up in a world that will be so far into using machines and algorithms for every single task that in the end they have to think about what are they going to be doing, right? What is the thing that makes us human? And this is the ultimate question I think many people have posed. I think in the near future, we can be pretty much anything, given that technology will allow us to change many things that used to limit us. Now we can be, in theory, anything. And the question really is, what do we want to be? And what, what does it define to be human? If you're a kid today, then you're going to go into a world where it's virtually unlimited in possibility. And that can be very much challenging, but also bring up deep philosophical questions about, you know, what is the purpose of what I do. Uh, how does learning and education need to evolve to keep up with this growing demand in technology? You mentioned the very essence of it, the hum dehumanizing of, of individuals. Are, are we really at risk of future generations being dehumanized? Well, we have a lot of dehumanization now, for example, in social media, right? So rather than reading the news, we read our social media feed, which is programmed by, by a bot, you know, by an algorithm. And we see the impact on elections based on this and the manipulation and bias that comes from it, you know. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's, that's one thing. But basically what's happening is, first, uh, people are really misunderstanding the hype about thinking machines. These machines are not intelligent and they're certainly not thinking like a human. They're thinking like a machine. But these machines are capable of looking at one trillion data points in real time, you know, every four seconds to come to a conclusion, which we can't, right? But they don't have any way of looking at things that are not data. And in the human world, most things are not data. You know, they're ambiguous. They're not binary. They're multinary. And for humans, that's very easy. I think the famous researcher Moravec once said that whatever is easy for a computer is hard for a human and vice versa. And that is going to be true, I think, at least for the next 25, 30 years. And that's kind of where our future lies. So in other words, anything that is a routine, bookkeeping, accounting, driving, checkout at the supermarket, fact-checking, non-disclosure agreements, you know, what, what have you, anything that's more or less routine, computers will do and will learn, which means that any job that is routine is going away in the next decade. The positive side of that is, once we let go of the routine, 
we're going to be doing things that is what I call human-only work. Human-only work is negotiation, conversation, imagination, intuition. For our kids, that means the future of our work is going to be everything that machines can't do. And we have to learn those things again. That's like emotional intelligence, social intelligence, understanding, uh, wisdom. It's the humanities, basically. And on top of that, of course, we have to understand technology. If we don't understand technology, then we don't have to get too close to technology. But if we don't understand it, then I think it's very difficult for us to why that is an issue. Right? Uh, and I think in Europe, for example, this is a major challenge for us because we tend to think of technology as being you know, software or machines, but this, these technologies are becoming quite capable of doing the things that we used to do. So it could be indeed a, a kind of flourishing of the humanities and a flourishing of humanism uh, if, if we frame it right and if we look at it right. And that's the positive side. Of course, there's also uh, a deeply sinister evil side. You've spoken of the need to construct ethical frameworks within this extremely rapidly changing world. So when it comes to protecting children, who should be taking the lead in forming these frameworks? Is it business? Is it big tech giants, governments? Yeah, let's talk about, talk about the positive side for a minute before we go back to the dystopian. Technology will be able to solve very, very large, long-standing problems for us. That includes food, electricity, energy, a hunger, of course, solving that is a scientifically a possibility of using new methods of creating food. Uh, water desalination, you know, all of those practical things technology can solve in the next 20 years. For example, we're going to have abundant energy based on renewables. That's entirely possible. Think of energy like Spotify, you know, like basically completely commodified and abundant. That's all possible with technology, but technology will not solve social, cultural or political problems because these are human issues. They are beyond the possibilities of algorithms. So the main thing is to understand that technology will solve many problems, including cancer and diseases, possibly. But then we need governance. Right? So the, the real issue here is technology can do all of those great things. But if it results in inequality, if it results in racism, if it results in bias, if it results in dehumanization, you know, that's going to be a bad thing. And that would be the dystopian part. right? So we could live in heaven or hell, depending on governance. That's what it comes down to. And this governance will have to figure out, you know, what is the right thing to do in ethical, economic, and human terms, not just in economic terms, right? And then we have to have guidelines. So for our kids, to protect our kids, the main thing is that we're going to need to protect humanity. We're going to have to make sure that we can stay human in a world that's essentially run by machines. And, and I don't know if you've seen the news the last couple of days, Elon Musk and his Neurolace, which is a, a contraption that you can attach to the head and it reads your brain waves and you can command your wheelchair with it and things like that. But the idea is of you know, basically connecting your brain to the internet. Okay? If we go into a direction of where we become superhuman, uh, then the question is, what do we lose as far as humanity is concerned? For example, a secrecy, mystery, serendipity, accidents, mistakes, you know, the things that make us not a machine, right? <laughs> and I think that is the thing that we have to protect. And then the question is who will do this? And it's quite clear the industry will not do this because uh, you're talking about trillions of dollars of revenue streams, right? So 
It comes down to the role of government and politics and society, which is to equalize between science and technology and business, is to make sure that we do the right thing. And in my view, there's no other way than a global government of a sort, or what I call a digital ethics council, you know, some sort of council of the wise people like ancient Greece or Italy for that matter, to put together sort of the guidelines of, you know, what is the right thing to do. Let's look at it from the child's perspective. For instance, we know research done here at UNICEF Innocenti suggests that 70% of children are now online in one form or another. And indeed, one in three internet users are under 18. So, you know, isn't it also that children and youth themselves are in mission control, especially when you look at this sort of growing digital literacy, they deal with face-enabled technology, facial recognition tools, all of that world that they navigate. So how do they dodge the landmines? And aren't they also really in control themselves? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think that quite clearly having lots of technology in our lives uh, is the new normal. But I would question whether not being human or being superhuman should be the new normal. And again, the, the issue is really quite simple, especially for our kids. Today, for you know, if you're my age or our age, you're sort of coming from a background where you remember when there wasn't any internet. You know? We actually remember what it was like to be offline. Our kids don't even know that anymore. So I think it's important for us to realize that in the near future, we can do anything with technology. I mean... It's unlimited. So uh, the definition of what we want to be, which in my view is to be human, that is the ultimate goal. And if you're looking at a global sort of average of thinking, most people want to remain human and they want to uh, go on with the pursuit of happiness, you know, and, and that's the sort of general ethics around the world, you could say. And, and, and the question is, are we going to be more happy because we have more technology? And the answer is no. Because technology, as many philosophers have said, Technology is not what we, what we seek, but it's how we seek. It's a tool. And if you're looking around us, uh, technology has graduated from being a tool uh, to being a purpose. Some people would even say to be God. And I think that is a bad development because it will not benefit us to be more happy uh, just because we can download every possible application to do whatever we used to do ourselves. <laughs> so this kind of disintermediation of the human is a huge business, but it's a very bad idea. And we need to make sure that our kids know what it means to be human without necessarily being connected. I mean, that's where it all starts, right? As I always like to say, you can't download happiness and a relationship is not an app. And this is what technology tells us. It tells us that we can shortcut all of the process and the work and never mind the 10,000 hours that it would take you to be a good musician. Now you can do the same thing with 10 minutes and an iPad. <laughs> and that's just not true, you know? I mean, nothing against people doing 10 minutes and an iPad and being a DJ, that's fun, but it's not the same thing. And so I think what we need to be sure of is that we tell stories and that we propagate what it really means to be human, not to be a simulation of human, which is what technology really is. I mean, if you're looking at social media, that is a simulation of social. It's not actually social. In many ways, you could say it's actually asocial. Anti-social media. Yeah. And of course, you know, first of all, it's, it's a huge business. And, and what has happened, if you're looking at Facebook, for example, Facebook makes $160 million of profit every single day. And how does it do that? 
it turns us and our kids into content, right? We are the fodder for Facebook. And not that it doesn't have any good things, it does, yeah. But somehow you have to say, well, you know, what is our end of the bargain here? And have we been sort of instrumentalized? And this has nothing to do with being negative on technology. I'm not, you know, I, most of my talks are about technology. But uh, it has to do with saying, okay, at what point does it threaten our humanity? And what do we need to do to maintain it? For example, showing our, our children skills of interhuman relationships, uh, reading between the lines, understanding people. And keep in mind that computers are amazing, but they are only simulations of our reality. You know, they're, they're tools and not the actual reality yet, at least. <laughs> So is this what is this what you mean by the potential ethics upgrade? Can you flesh out a bit more what you mean on the potential ethics upgrade? Well, I think it's, you know, with anything that's really powerful and very cheap and potentially addictive, like technology, what we need is not to say yes or no, because that would be too easy. I mean, you know, we allow alcohol, right? And, and that's a big drug, and we allow smoking for the most part, which is even a worse drug. But we don't outlaw it. We say, okay, if you have to smoke, you can do it here or there, but you know, not here. And we have laws that, that, that say, okay, kids can't drink when they're 12 years old, and, and that makes sense. And with technology now, we have to have the same thing. We have to say, okay, we're going to genetically engineer this person in 20 years so we can avoid cancer. And if we can save one person's life with that, we have to do that, obviously. But on the flip side, we shouldn't say, well, now that we've got this amazing tool, why don't we build a super soldier? Or why don't we make it so that we can live 200 years, provided you have a million euros? And so this is a question of balance, not of overall yes or no. And the balance in society is always achieved through consensus, uh, social contracts, uh, social strategies, the way that we interact, norms, regulations, laws. And these are the laws that we need to devise in the future. And some of them will not be laws, they will just be social agreements. Uh, like, for example, we have a social agreement about not using the mobile phone. Uh, in Italy, at least, when we're having dinner. Yeah, so uh, we need to think about what that means and where we're going to go with this and, and how we're going to balance this. Because if we don't balance this, basically, technology is the biggest business ever invented in humanity. And everybody wants to live longer. If we don't watch out for that, then we are going to become machines. So, yes, the potential ethics upgrade. Yes. Now it comes down to say, okay, what is our ethical position on this? And for that, it's not so easy to define intricate ethical positions, but it's quite easy to define top-level ethical agreements. And by the way, as the Dalai Lama said, you know, ethics is more important than religion, him being a religious leader. I think that's going in the same direction, though. We have to define an ethic that serves all of humanity on a, on a more or less global, regional, and, of course, local level. For example, we have pretty widespread agreement that it would not be wise to have uh, weapons that can kill autonomously without human interference, like drones. So you have a drone flying, and instead of having a video operator, the drone has AI, and it decides a four-year-old girl is a terrorist. And... We have pretty much, except for two countries in the world, decided that this is a very bad idea. And this is not a practical decision. It works, as far as that can be called to work. Right? You know, it's doable. And now we have decided it's probably not a good idea to do this, just like we have decided uh, for nuclear non-proliferation treaties. 
it's not a good idea for everybody to have a bomb. Uh, and now we're sitting here, and there's three major topics. One is artificial intelligence and thinking machine. The second one is genetic engineering, human genome at CRISPR-Cas9, that whole discussion. And the third one is geoengineering, you know, changing the weather and changing the structure of the world. And all of those scientific progress is just mind-boggling, like every other week, a major announcement. So if we want to get this right, we have to say, okay, what are our ethics about engineering the human body? And it doesn't help if Italy decides this, and then Germany decides that, and then China decides that, right? Uh, sooner or later, this is a global issue. So that's why we need what I call the Council of the Wisdom. You know, people who are paid, essentially, to think and propose uh, on a global level and say, you know what, let's consider this before we start messing with the genome. Let's consider the implications and also what's called the externalities, you know, the side effects that we haven't thought about. One of the things that we haven't probably thought enough and prepared enough for is children are navigating a space online and indeed often being used by, by military or recruited by military because of their extraordinary online skills and that gaming world where it is that augmented reality um, that they're playing in and the modern warfare is, is in that digital space. How do you see that unfolding and, and what sort of impact is that likely to have, particularly on the mental health of children and the, the sort of social well-being of children, given that new space? I think the challenge is that currently the future is being defined by the internet companies and the technology companies. They are telling the story about the future. And the other defining part is the military. And sometimes they're the same, <laughs> as in Silicon Valley. right? And that is a very bad idea. Because one is about money and the other one is about power. And money and power are fine within reason, but the thing that matters most for people isn't any of those things, right? It's relationships, engagement, being human, fulfilling your goals, self-realization. You know, it's all the stuff that's more ephemeral in a way. And to protect those things is crucial for us uh, on a world level. Otherwise, you know, we are going to merge with machines and that will be the end of Homo sapiens, as many people have said is going to happen. I don't believe that's our destiny, but there's a distinct challenge for this, right? So, you know, the protection part is really important. I mean, we are protecting ourselves against addiction. You know, maybe marijuana is now free in many countries or decriminalized, but, you know, we're not giving away crack in the corner shop kiosk, right? We are protecting ourselves against all the powerful things so that they can be balanced. And in France, there's a new regulation that says you can't use the, the smartphone in schools. We're going to need to come up with things like, okay, if kids are using the internet and very soon this will be done on, on your eyeglasses, right? Or on the smartwatch or, you know, whatever surface you're using. We need to protect as to what they can do there. And we need to hold people liable like the social networks for misinformation. Uh, we have to what I call rehumanize technology. If we don't do that, we're going to again end up in a world where technology rules to such a degree where we forget who we are. We're really running to catch up, aren't we? Because if the future is being defined by big tech companies and, and the military, and so as we are marking this year, the 30th anniversary of the most widely ratified convention, uh, the Convention on Child Rights, 
you yourself have put forward five core human rights that could form the basis of a future digital ethics manifesto for this wise council that, that you mentioned. Can you take us through them and why did you choose those specifically? And what do you see as the impact on children? Yeah, so, you know, they have mushroomed into many more, but I can just go through some of them. Basically, for example, I need to have the right to disconnect. That's, that's essential, uh, especially for children. In fact, I think we need to enforce the disconnection to create a reconnection to yourself. Because uh, if we agree, and, and this is being discussed, of course, widely, that humans are not machines. I mean, I, I would say we agree on this, but many people don't agree on that. You know, they're saying that, you know, organisms are algorithms. But let's say, let's say we assume that humans are different than machines. Then we would say, okay, that basically means I need to do the things that make me human, like digest information, or contemplate, boredom. I think we need a protection of boredom, you know, if, if you can do such a thing. <laughs> uh, and so one of the things is the right to be offline means that you're not always expected to be digitally connected just because it's commercially interesting. Humans are not computers, and at a certain point, we have what are called digital obesity, which is like becoming digitally fat and dying from overload. You know, the power users of social networks have the most, the highest suicide rate of any internet user. And these things don't bode very well when you think about virtuality and augmented reality, which are going to be very tempting, you know, escaping your world in a complete kind of way. So there I would say we have to have the right to disconnect, which means that there is a provision that says, okay, I'm not expected to work after I go home and check my emails and go on the VR call and, you know, we have a right to go away. And second, I think I have to have the right to be unaugmented. Imagine such a time... Today, augmentation means the mobile phone, the smartphone, but this is harmless to, to a very large degree because it's outside of my body. I mean, that's not harmless, but <laughs> limited harm, okay? Uh, let's think about this on my eyeglasses or even as Elon Musk is suggesting, a brain-computer interface. Then I become essentially useless without augmentation. And that is the part to me where I would say that is no longer defined as human. If I'm useless because I'm not using this stuff, then I think we've broken the very basic convention of what it means to be human. Is that what you fear most for the future, not being human? Yes, I think, you know, that we need to think about, the reality is this, you know, we can have a choice that says we're, we're going to be superhuman. Uh, we're not going to be human anymore. We're going to morph with technology and we're going to use technology to transcend, as people say, transhumanist. Uh, to transcend humanity. And that is being discussed everywhere now, and it seems like science fiction, but it's not, not at all. It's going to happen in our lifetime, and it's already starting to happen. And so many people are proposing that we're going to leave this behind and essentially give up our autonomy to where we function with technology, just like a computer. And I think that's fundamentally the wrong direction. Uh, I always say that if we do this, then technology is not an upgrade, it's a downgrade. Just take the example of the smartphone. That is an upgrade for us. We can you know, check the weather or look at Google Maps or, or get a date or whatever we do there, right? We can do all of that, but it's also a downgrade because all of a sudden we start thinking of the world as being inside of this box. And we stop looking at each, at each other, and we are no longer ready for a conversation. And, you know, we have more relationships with the screen than we have with people. 
And that has side effects, including suicide and including depression and including overload and including, you know, mental addiction and all of those things. And so what needs to happen here is that we say, okay, we use this to our good, but we don't use it so much that it becomes the dominating force in our life. And to find that compromise is what we have to do. So in the future, the future of childhood, what makes you most optimistic for this generation about to be born or who will be in the next, within the next 20 years that you say will be changing much faster than the last 300? Yeah, I think first of all, I, I always say we, we need to give humans more credit than we are currently doing. We're not going to be replaced by machines anytime soon, provided that we upskill and unlearn and relearn and, and become more human. I mean, I always say if you work like a robot, a robot will take your job. And so I think that many people have creativity, imagination, foresight, especially kids, that we need to nurture so that they can grow into being more human rather than less human. And the potential is there. It's not, I mean, you, you can even take a 50-year-old cab driver uh, and find a new job, provided you can find his other skills, right? And uh, yeah, of course, that in some cases will be difficult because of habits and tradition and manners and experiences, yes. But, you know, I think we have to give humans more credit for change. And I really think that if you're looking at kids, the possibilities there are endless. Our challenge will be is to guide kids into this kind of thinking of themselves as human rather than as a efficiency machine. And that means a complete overhaul of education. Currently, our, most of our education in Europe is teaching our kids to be robots, to download information and to dispense it. And that's what robots do. What we need our kids to do is to invent, to come up with stories, to understand, to philosophize, to consider, to predict, to create. And that is why we have to redo our entire education and say, okay, technology is great. We certainly have to be very good at technology. But really what we need is the what I call in my book the andro-rhythms, the human things, right, rather than the algorithms. The andro-rhythms, you know, negotiation, understanding, imagination. We have to nurture those in school so that our kids come out and say, you know what, I know something about what really matters. In many ways, this is kind of a renaissance that we need. The renaissance says we have all the power of technology, but we're going to use it for human flourishing, not just for financial flourishing or flourishing of power. Because it can be used for that. Imagine a world where most of our work is done, you know, we only work two hours a day for the same money because technology makes it possible. That would be a very, very positive development, what people call a Star Trek society. <laughs> but the flip side could also happen, and this is really, I think, this is why it's so important that we come up with a consensus and a discussion about what we need. And also along with children and young people to have this flourishing of, of a renaissance and what better place to do so and to end this uh, this riveting discussion with you, then, of course, the heart of Renaissance, Florence Gert Lernhardt. Thank you so very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to our podcast, The Future of Childhood. 
Be sure to subscribe to our series for more fascinating insights into the world of tomorrow to help make sense of a rapidly changing today. To find out more about our work in this series, visit our website at unicef-irc.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash UNICEF Innocenti and on Twitter, we're at UNICEF Innocenti and I'm at scrow underscored UNICEF. Thank you from your friends at UNICEF. For every child, answers. <laughs>